0: Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most
1: Foul. Hey,
2: hey, hey. Howdy, howdy. Episode 60, motherfuckers.
0: I can't believe (laughs) this is, it's so old for the listeners that I say this every time, but as I was like, labeling my notes and stuff when well, I was like, what episode is this? And I was like, 60, holy shit.
2: But also in some ways, doesn't it feel like it should be even more? Like, in some ways, I feel like we've always been doing this podcast, not in the bad way, like, oh, it feels like forever, but just doesn't it feel like it's been forever?
0: Kind of. But And it's like, it also feels like we're really close to 100, even though that's quite a ways away. <laughs>
2: I feel the same way we like obsessing on milestone numbers but that's normal she tells herself <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been up to i miss you i got a little in-person dose of you and now i'm in withdrawal
0: oh that was so wonderful
1: <laughs> it was amazing i went to
0: a conference i got to spend some time and in- my old stomping grounds in DC, that was very fun.
2: Yay, amazing. It's almost like life is somewhat returning to something like normal.
0: I not—I definitely was not convinced I was going to get sick, but I, it was like, okay, yeah, I've flown already. Like I've done that, been there, done that. But I was like, oh, conferences. So constantly talking to strangers face to face. Mm-hmm. Not a mask in sight. Let me tell you, not a single one.
2: Did you mask?
0: Anyway. <laughs> no, I didn't.
2: So you were just inviting the Rona then?
0: I still masked on the plane.
2: Well, I should hope so, Andrew. Because
0: that freaks me out.
2: Yeah. I don't but think I would I'll ever sick. fly again without a mask.
0: I had a job where I had to fly at least twice a month every month Mm -hmm. and i would get sick all the time yeah but pre pre-covid COVID COVID didn't even exist yet (laughs) or i guess oh i was about to say something real stupid (laughs) i'll say it is it 19 because it's like the 19th identified one or is it just covid 19 for some other reason
2: (laughs) it's from because it was first identified and named in 2019
0: Mm, okay (laughs) good to know (laughs)
2: Which is why now it feels like we just need to call it COVID, because...
0: Because I was like, well, I guess there's COVID 1 through 18.
2: (laughs) Well, I told you my deeply embarrassing thing when I was visiting you in person, which is too shameful to mention on the podcast. Maybe someday.
0: (laughs) Well, I've already alluded, and next week's episode, I'm going to reveal an embarrassing fact about myself. (laughs)
2: so basically y'all we're human we're human we have brain farts just like you
0: <laughs> outside of the conference though i really don't think i've done anything nothing i mean lots of tv mm. finished the great british bake off
2: yeah
0: oh i read a book what that, on but paper that was part of the travel time of the conference oh,
2: okay got it yeah a paper book
0: A Kindle book, Mm. so kind of. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of. It has the paper screen setting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that all sounds exciting.
0: What about you? Anything fun?
2: Let's see. Well, besides the trip, um, I mean, it took me a while to recover from all of the fun and excitement of the trip because I'm still recovering. And... Yeah, just a lot of recovering. Oh, I started my own business.
0: Ah, yes.
2: (laughs) So that's been keeping me busy. I started my own business, so I would have to work less hard. But of course, starting a business is a lot of work. So it's all pretty flat line until this imaginary future date when I will be able to work less. (laughs) Um, Yes. So there's that because I'm a masochist. On many fronts but it has allowed me to spend more time with my kids because i control my own hours more so that's been good and what else we went to this um converted boy scout camp which is now like a, a family adventure park yesterday oh. where they have like high low ropes courses and my kids shot BB guns for the first time, which was very cool because, you know, I grew up in Missouri, so I had a BB gun when I was a kid. I was shooting actual guns when I was seven or eight. So it was cool to see them learn that skill and and get to do it. And so, yeah, it was fun. It was just like a little outdoorsy thing. So I'm imagining a world in which we all get outside, even in the winter. Mm -hmm. and maybe even try our hand at some winter sports like possibly skiing i don't know but then i started researching lift tickets and equipment and it's so fucking expensive who does this
0: rich people (laughs) (laughs) ah just the
2: lift tickets and then
0: skiing freaks me out
2: Yeah, so I was like, well, how about cross-country skiing? That's kind of my speed, like a dark snowy wood and just you with nature. Um, (laughs) But my kids were not as into it. (laughs) So we'll see. But yeah, that's kind of it, you know. Yeah, not a lot of excitement, but looking forward to the holiday, Thanksgiving. How do you feel about Thanksgiving? Where does it rank one to one to five on your top holidays
1: um
0: i guess three Mm -hmm. but for me it's only about food
2: (laughs) yeah yeah totally i mean i like the food at thanksgiving i enjoy i enjoy i mean the turkey okay i've had a few good turkeys in my time but the sides like
0: mm. and it's things that i never cook Mm, yeah. Cuz I'm with you like turkey's not my favorite protein by any means, but it's like well, other than like shaved deli meat, like this is the only time in the whole year I'm having turkey. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but when you cover it with a big heaping mound of really buttery, sour, creamy mashed potatoes, then it takes on a different a different slant.
0: That's close to my potatoes. Mm.
2: I mean just put all the dairy, all the dairy in the world into it. Mm. And don't mash yes, it too butter, much. Yes, sour cream, yes,
0: sharp cheddar, green onion. But mine's a casserole, not a mash.
2: Mm. Mm. Interesting.
0: So I parboil and then grate as if I'm going to make hash browns, mm-hmm. but then that gets baked into a casserole.
2: Mm.
1: mm.
2: And then it basically mashes itself, right? It just kind of disintegrates
0: there's a tiny bit of texture if you do it right Mm. one year this is well who cares i had to use golden potato because there wasn't russet in the store Mm -hmm. and that fully disintegrated. it may as well have been mashed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i was pissed because it's a lot of work to grate them (laughs) i was like if i knew it was just gonna be mashed i would have just mashed it (laughs) (laughs) even though it tasted good i was furious
2: See, I don't like them mashed into, like, you know, some mashed potatoes, it's almost like whipped potatoes.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: No, no, no. I like them lumpy, but, you know, incorporated. But I also sometimes will do skin on uh, with mashed. So it's more like a smashed. But really, I mean, you just can't do a shit ton of dairy plus potatoes wrong.
0: How do you feel about a corn casserole?
2: I don't know that I've ever had one, but you described yours to me. I mean, I like creamed corn, which I imagine maybe there are some similarities. So
0: I do it every holiday. Well, it's delicious, but also it is the most simple thing on earth. <laughs> it is so easy. It's like a can of whole kernel corn, a can of creamed corn. Mm-hmm. A box of Jiffy corn muffin mix.
2: Oh, yes. You don't sour
0: cream and probably butter, but like that's it. Mm. You just swirl it around, put it in the oven. It bakes up kind of like a cornbread.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> and it's so simple, like three minutes before you put it in the oven.
2: Yeah, that sounds really, really good. I could get into that.
0: So if you're ever having a potluck where you're just bringing a side, volunteer for that one.
2: Oh my God, I'm the worst. I volunteer and then I buy stuff or lately my MO, late and by lately I mean like the last six years, um, my MO is I volunteer for something and then I pay someone else to buy me something <laughs> to bring. I used to do that all the time at the place where we worked together. I would sign up for something and then I would pay a coworker to bring that thing for me.
0: So one very quick story before I guess we probably jump into it, but listeners, our work team had some truly spectacular potlucks. Oh,
2: so spectacular.
0: And one absolute nightmare failure.
2: Which was a failure?
0: It sounded really good. It sounded like a good idea when we pitched... And again, this is a team of like 20 plus people. Yeah,
2: I think I know the and one when you are going to say. And we pitched
0: the idea of an all dessert potluck.
2: Yes, but I don't remember it being bad. What was bad about it?
0: The sugar crash. Oh, well. Uh, the rest of the workday was brutal.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's like drinking at lunch when you're at work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can't describe like so many delicious things and then it was like for the love of god is there any salt in this office
1: <laughs> I
2: mean if only we had worked right underneath a food a food court
0: <laughs> Oh if only
2: <laughs> which we actually did
0: But then we were too full from all the dessert gosh So I even though no your body needed that. it
2: I have no memory of that <laughs>
0: we had homemade marshmallows we've had creme brulee we've had uh like shrimp and grits like cooked in the office we did a lot of in-office cooking we were nuts
2: (laughs) (laughs) it was so good though yeah that was a definite perk but i think it's appropriate we're talking about food food and more food because it's almost thanksgiving and Today's episode is somewhat Thanksgiving themed, related. Yes. We're going to talk about a crime that happened famously on the night before Thanksgiving, which I saw some references to as Thanksgiving Eve. And
0: I also saw that.
2: I'm against that. That feels wrong. <laughs> it's so easy to say the night before Thanksgiving. But as you could tell from the title when you clicked on this to listen to us today, we're talking about D.B. Cooper and the hijacking of Flight 305. (laughs) So just a little bit of background. I don't want to do a a whole big background segment like we sometimes do, but I want to give a little bit of background because I think that when we think about hijacking now – the modern perspective is so different. So I want to set the scene a little bit and give the context of of air travel and what hijacking meant at the time. Mm-hmm. So between 1929, when commercial air travel really kind of took off, and 1957, there were fewer than 20 reported hijackings worldwide. So, I mean, count them on a couple of hands, right? Between 1958 and 1967... That number more than doubled, which still gives us only about 40 incidents of hijacking worldwide. But that's a really big jump, right? Even though it still represented a tiny fraction of the flights happening around the world at the time, the response to that jump in the United States, at least, was swift. Congress passed the Federal Aviation Act of 1958, which imposed severe penalties for hijacking a commercial jet. And in some places, it's called air piracy, which sounds way cooler than hijacking. But (laughs) (laughs) that year, the FAA also began the modern sky marshal program, putting armed officers on flights. In 1961, the FAA banned concealed weapons on flights, which is kind of crazy to imagine a time when you could take a concealed weapon on a flight. (laughs) And that's before both of our times. (laughs) And in 1964, the FAA instituted regulations requiring cockpits on commercial flights to be locked at all times. Now, I think a lot of people associate that change in policy to 9-11, right? But this actually was instituted in 1964. Although I think that exceptions were definitely made. I remember flying as a kid and hearing stories about kids being able to go and visit the cockpit and look out the front window. And, you know, so it was a regulation, but how, how staunchly enforced it was, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But in 1968, things changed dramatically. And between 68 and 1972, the incidents of hijacking skyrocketed. In those five years alone, there were 326 hijack attempts worldwide, and that breaks down to one every 5.6 days. Wow. Yeah. So in a really short amount of time, the landscape of this changed completely. And so this is something that was definitely on law enforcement's radar. It was seen as something really important. But of course, we're going to talk today about D.B. Cooper and the hijacking of Flight 305, which happened in 1971. So we're at the end of that last period that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So on midday of Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, again, the day before Thanksgiving, a nondescript middle-aged man wearing a suit and tie walked up to a ticket agent for Northwest Orient Airlines in the Portland International Airport. He purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington for later that afternoon. And as was possible at that time, he paid cash, uh, $20 to be exact, and that's about $150 in today's money. After boarding shortly before 2.45 p.m. that day, the man who, when he bought the ticket, called himself Dan Cooper, again, possible to buy tickets without showing a passport or any kind of real identity
0: well I know that it happens today but even the idea of buying a plane ticket for today right and it not being an emergency feels unhinged
2: right and walking up to the ticket agent at the airport sliding a 20 across the counter (laughs) Telling the person, hey, my name's Dan Cooper, and being given a ticket to board. It all seems made up, but this is how it worked in 1971. Wild. So this man, who again called himself Dan Cooper, he settled into seat 18E of the Boeing 727 that was scheduled for that flight. And again, in something that's slightly different, he ordered a bourbon and soda while the plane prepared for departure. And this is a little different because seat 18E would have been in the economy section, but, you know, it was just a different time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Flight attendants paid attention to you, even in economy. You could get alcohol, even in economy. Um, you could
0: probably put your legs up in economy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so he settles in, and the flight takes off without any anything unusual happening at that point. But once up in the air, Cooper handed a note to the flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, which was intended for the pilot, one Captain William Scott, who at that point had been flying with the airline for over 20 years. The note read, quote, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase and want you to sit by me, end quote. Some reports say that she kind of didn't take him seriously initially. But he opened a briefcase that he had in his lap, and he showed to her what appeared to her to be a bomb. So a couple of red cylinders, some wire, and kind of a digital timepiece-looking thing. Mm -hmm. So Tina sat down next to the man, and he proceeded to provide her with detailed demands. And she wrote those down and then delivered them to the captain in the cockpit.
0: I can't imagine the fear.
2: Yeah, I mean, it had to have been crazy. And again, I mean, commercial flying at this point is still not super old. I mean, we're talking, you know, four or five decades. So Mm -hmm. even though things had been on the rise, I don't think there would have been a lot of news coverage of it. And, you know, uh, there was no precedent. There was no uh, situation where the airlines had, you know, here's the kind of standard procedure if this happens. They were just all kind of flying on instinct. Mm Mm-hmm. When the plane landed in Seattle, he told Tina, he wanted the plane to park in a remote part of the runway area. He wanted a refueling truck to be standing by to refuel the jet. He also demanded $200,000, or just under $1.5 today. And he wanted it all in $20 bills packed in a knapsack. He also demanded four parachutes. And he wanted two of them to be the front style that are worn on the front. I think that's called also a military style. And Mm -hmm. he wanted two of them to be back style, or I think that's also known as sports style, or people who skydive for fun. In exchange for these things, he would release all of the passengers and two of the flight attendants, leaving only Tina, who he kept by his side during the entire flight. And William, the captain and pilot, First Officer Bob Radizak and Flight Engineer Harold Anderson on the plane. The captain notified air traffic control immediately, and they contacted the police and the FBI. The airline ordered the flight crew to stall and essentially to cooperate with the hijacker completely, no questions asked. So again, there was no standard operating procedure here. There was no, we don't negotiate with terrorists. It was just, do what he says while we figure this out. So before the flight was even midway through what should have been just a one-hour flight, Northwest Orient was working on readying the fuel and sourcing the parachutes. Meanwhile, the FBI was tasked with sourcing, photographing, and packaging $10,020 bills. Passengers on the flight were told that their arrival was delayed due to a mechanical difficulty. And during this time, while the police and the FBI got their things together, the plane circled Puget Sound for about two hours. So this definitely has to bring to mind scenes from Die Hard, right? Or Die Hard 2 of just what are people on that plane even thinking at this point?
0: Well, not that. (laughs) (laughs) I once had a flight from uh from Dallas to San Francisco mm-hmm. that's normally like four hours it, it was like ten hours That I mean we had to like land in Phoenix for a while but they also wouldn't let us off the plane and there was a mechanical problem and then we had to fly at a lower altitude and it was close to mutiny <laughs>
1: oh my
2: god that's crazy
0: maybe people would be more not respectful maybe they would not be as intense as people today
2: (laughs) yeah i mean at this time air travel was still very much seen as if not a luxury a privilege at the time people dressed nicely to go on planes Um, they certainly treated the staff on the planes much better i think than they're treated today even before covid but also again there probably wouldn't have been a thought in anyone's mind that something like this could be happening I think they would have been a lot more predisposed to believe that there was some kind of mechanical failure. And because people, even people who traveled at the time, were probably not at the level of the really hardcore business travelers today. They may not have even recognized that they were circling the same patch for two hours, right? Yeah. So then at about 5.46 that evening, which was about an hour after sunset at that time of year there, And just shy of three hours after the flight had departed from the Portland Airport, Flight 305 landed in Seattle. The plane taxied to a remote area of the airfield, which was several hundred yards from the airport and away from any light sources. The only people that Cooper allowed near the plane at that time were those people in the refueling truck, which ended up being three refueling trucks because of difficulties with the first one. And a single man who delivered the cash and the parachutes to Tina, who was the one who was allowed to go off the plane to retrieve them. Mm -hmm. So this whole process took about two hours. And the passengers were instructed to stay in their seats during this whole time. But once the plane was refueled and the cash and the chutes had been received, Cooper released all 37 passengers and two flight attendants. Tina and the rest of the flight crew were held back on board. Cooper then instructed the flight crew to set a course for Reno, Nevada, and he didn't give them an exact bearing, but he told them to fly almost due south and pass over Portland, where they had just come from, and then Medford, Oregon, before tacking southeast to Reno. In Reno, the plane was supposed to land under similar conditions as it had in Seattle refuel again, and then take off for Yuma, Arizona, where the process would repeat before taking off for its ultimate destination of Mexico City. So along with this kind of very rough flight plan, Cooper also instructed the flight crew to keep the aircraft below 10,000 feet, to maintain a minimal airspeed, and to keep flaps and landing gear lowered. So not long after they took off, at around 7.40 that evening, Cooper took Tina to the cockpit and he instructed all the crew who was still on the plane to remain inside the cockpit. He moved to the back of the plane and locked himself in the rear compartment. And a few minutes later, at about 8 p.m., a warning system alarm in the cockpit went off and indicated that the rear cargo door had been opened. Around this time, again, the cockpit system let the flight crew know that the cabin temperature had dropped to about negative seven Fahrenheit or about negative 22 Celsius. And then at about 813, so just not even 15 minutes later, the flight crew noted a sudden upward motion of the tail section, which was strong enough to force the pilot to kind of correct for the bounce. Mm hmm. And it was later surmised that that sense of the tail lifting was when Cooper exited the plane. Three Air Force jets had been pulled from a nearby Air Force base, and they had been tailing the 727 at a distance of about two miles since they took off. But none of the pilots in those planes reported seeing anything drop from the 727 at any point during the flight. It's not totally surprising because it was a dark night, a cloudy night, and it was intermittent rain. Mm -hmm. As they approached Reno, the crew tried to reach Cooper over the intercom system to let him know that they were coming into the airport, and they wanted him to raise the stairs and close the door so they could land. But when they received no response after about five minutes, they concluded that he had, in fact, jumped from the plane through the rear cargo door. The pilot landed in Reno with the rear stairs down which caused a lot of sparking and damage to the plane, but they landed safely. When the crew exited the cockpit and went into the passenger deck, they found Cooper gone, as they had suspected. He had left behind a few clues, though, and first was one untouched parachute that was just sitting there unused. There was also another parachute left behind, but this one had been deconstructed. Investigators quickly deduced from this that Cooper had taken two shoots with him, a front and a back, and used the third shoot, the one that had been deconstructed, for parts to attach the ransom money to his body because it had come in a sack rather than in a knapsack. Cooper also left behind his tie, two hair samples, eight Raleigh cigarette butts, and over 50 possible fingerprints. Military and local law enforcement agencies immediately conducted one of the largest manhunts conducted to that point. Washington State's Lewis County Sheriff deputies patrolled a 25-mile section of the Randall Trout Lake Road, which expanded into northern Clark County. The FBI authorized flights retracing the path of the plane and recreated the known factors to try to tighten up the timing of when Cooper exited the plane. And home in on a smaller search perimeter but because conditions like i said were dark and cloudy that night and no one could know how long cooper remained in free fall before he pulled the ripcord getting a precise drop zone was impossible it was also complicated by the fact that the pilot wasn't on a direct bearing he was just kind of more or less heading in a direction And so there was some back and forth later in the investigation about exactly how far east or west the plane was heading, what that bearing was. And there were various reports on things like the wind factor. All of this could have really impacted the drop zone considerably. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the entire southwest corner of Washington State, north of the Columbia River, was scoured by ground, by boat, and by air for nearly three weeks. They brought in hundreds of soldiers from Fort Lewis, and they were employed to wade through the thick foliage looking for any sign of Cooper, the parachute, or the money. Meanwhile, the FBI had officially launched what it dubbed the Norjack investigation. They scoured their records for similar crimes or criminals with a similar M.O., And they even did their due diligence and wanted to see, did they actually have someone named Dan Cooper out there committing similar kinds of crimes? You can never underestimate the Mm -hmm. stupidity of criminals. And they assembled a list during this process of hundreds of potential suspects. But over the course of the investigation and the next couple of years, all but a couple dozen of these were completely cleared. On December 8th, 1971, so just a few... Couple weeks after the crime, the US Attorney General made the decision to release the serial numbers of the ransom cash in the hopes that someone would identify the cash in use somewhere. And kind of predictably, this received tons of publicity that, in the end, probably hindered the investigation by pushing Cooper, if he survived the jump, even deeper underground. And in just a little interesting aside here, During these early days of the investigation, the FBI surfaced a Portland man with the initials DB, who they felt was a person of interest. And this somehow got leaked to the press, and they covered it widely. And that's why now the alias of the criminal who committed this crime is known as DB Cooper rather than Dan Cooper, which is the name that he gave when he bought the ticket.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But, of course, with DNA not on the table then, an airplane littered with probably hundreds if not thousands of unidentified fingerprints, a generic J.C. Penney's clip-on tie that was left behind, and a bland, physically unremarkable suspect, the investigation continued to come up empty.
0: Well, and it's not really surprising. I have to remind myself in a case like this, it's like, oh, you've got the FBI, it's you've got all of these people looking but I have to, like, take my brain a step back into the reality of, like, in this time period, people did not work, the jurisdiction, local cops weren't working with the FBI. Like, when I think of Zodiac, any of yeah. the types of things in this, because it's so easy to get, like, in sort of the police-FBI propaganda of, like, all of the thousands of TV shows about how good they are at solving cases. Yeah. Yeah. To remember that they really only solve like 38% of crimes.
2: Right. Well, and I think, you know, if you look at it from the FBI standpoint, they take crimes like this and bank robbery very seriously because, I mean, there's a lot of money involved, but also because I think they fear it sets some kind of precedent and it encourages copycats. And mm-hmm. this case definitely did, and we'll get to that. But from the public's perspective, This isn't anything like a Zodiac. No one was harmed. There were reports, even from Tina, that Cooper was very polite, was, you know, affable, educated, and pleasant. So there were some circles in the media and the public that kind of made D.B. Cooper out to be a folk hero. And that, you know, I think impacted things as well. So in the weeks and months after the crime with no more information, no solid leads that were coming to an arrest or anything close to it. Many people, including a lot of the investigators, believed that Cooper died in the jump. He was wearing just a suit and dress shoes. He didn't have on any kind of flight gear or goggles or jump shoes, nothing like that. It seemed really improbable to a lot of people that he could land in and then escape from a dense forest At night, amidst intermittent rain and temperatures that hovered at not much above freezing, all without leaving a trace. And so when we get to the wildly speculating out of our asses part, (laughs) we'll come back to this. But even in the early days, it was believed that he most probably died in the jump. But then a few months after the crime in April 1972, another crime happened that was incredibly similar to the Cooper hijacking. And this criminal was not quite as clever as Cooper had been, and he got himself caught. And his name was Richard Floyd McCoy. And so this brought renewed interest to the case. And it also sparked the suspicion that McCoy could be Cooper, and maybe this wasn't a copycat at all. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But in the end, McCoy had a solid alibi and he was cleared by the FBI for the Cooper crime. He 100% went to jail for the crime that he committed, and he later escaped from jail and was shot during a shootout while he was being re-apprehended. But his name comes up again later in some more theories. In 1978, a hunter in Washington found a placard, which was later verified to be from the aft stairs of Cooper 727. So that's a tantalizing clue, and how did it get there, and did he rip it off as he went down, and, but it ultimately led nowhere. But in February 1980, an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram found $5,800 in decomposing $20 bills on the banks of the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington. The FBI matched the serial numbers on those bills to the Cooper ransom. And this spawned hundreds of new theories within the communities of amateur sleuths that were then following the case. Just to beat our little drum that being obsessed with true crime is a new thing, totally not. There were people following this case. There were people trying to solve it on their own. They didn't Mm -hmm. have the internet to um, congregate on, but there were definitely people following this and trying to solve it on their own. And to this day, this is the only Cooper money ever to be recovered. So they examined the money. There were lots of theories about how it got there. It had traveled down. So around this time, the theory that Cooper had jumped and landed in a nearby lake with the ransom, and then the ransom had kind of floated downstream, um, that kind of came about. And again, we'll talk about theories later. But that was a big theory at this time. There were also other theories, though, that the money was planted to throw the scent off the case, that Cooper had died when he hadn't. There were even some theories that the Ingram family was somehow connected to a drug smuggling ring and that they had been paid to, quote unquote, find this money, which they had had in possession all this time. So a lot of kind of theories and interests came out of this. Then almost a decade later, after no more new information, a new theory came to light. And as we discussed in episodes 31 and 32, on June 1st, 1989, the fugitive John List, aka the Boogeyman of Westfield, was arrested after 17 years on the run. Now, I don't want to spoil those eps, so if you haven't already listened to them, go do that. But what I can say without spoilers is that because John List dropped off the radar on November 9th, 1971, just three weeks before the hijacking, and because his 1971 era photos bore a strong resemblance to composite sketches of Cooper, an FBI agent publicly called John List a quote, viable suspect in the hijacking.
0: So interesting.
2: (laughs) Right? And List always denied the claim. He denied it to his dying day. And the FBI never found solid evidence linking him to the case. But it remains a really interesting theory. Yeah. Former investigators and PIs around the country continued to work the case and propose suspects. A few people even confessed to the crime, including one deathbed confession in 2000, that was ultimately dismissed by the FBI after fingerprint analysis. In 2001, investigators isolated genetic material on the tie that Cooper left behind. And in 2007, that material was used to create a DNA profile. Investigators at the time, though, said that the sample quality only allowed for elimination and not identification. And finally, in 2016, the FBI officially closed the case and announced that they would be reallocating the resources to other investigations. They also said that they would only reopen it if they were presented with new physical evidence. Mm -hmm. They definitely, from all of the amateur sleuths, but also from retired FBI agents, retired local police had received lots and lots of circumstantial evidence, theories that were supported by circumstantial evidence, but what they felt they needed at that time to really make a break or an arrest was new physical evidence. So that's kind of the crime in a nutshell. The case is still officially open, but there continue to be loads and loads of theories and lots and lots of people who have inserted themselves into the case in various ways. One theory that was floated in 2007 in a New York Magazine article entitled Unmasking D.B. Cooper was that Cooper was Kenneth Christensen, who had been a paratrooper and left the military. He worked as a mechanic at Northwest Orient Airlines, which was the same airline that the hijacking took place on. Pictures show some similarity there. He also apparently liked bourbon, which... You know, (laughs) maybe not a short list of people, but there were some who felt that this was a very strong theory.
0: Well, paratrooper, I mean, makes sense because one, you got to have somebody who can survive it, but two, they have to, like, there's not going to be accuracy. It's not like he's going to land a mile from where a car is waiting mm-hmm. like this is gonna have to be somebody who can survive the parachute the landing navigate that and survive the wilderness
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah kenneth's brother later told reporters or told this writer that on his deathbed his brother kenneth had pulled him close and said to him there's something you should know but i can't tell you And he says he didn't want to know, and he didn't care, and not to tell him. But that in retrospect, after the reporter had come to him with this circumstantial evidence, it all seemed to make sense. So, you know, kind of take that for what it's worth. The one interesting thing about the paratrooper piece is, so Tina had reported that as they were flying, Cooper looked out the window and said, oh, that looks like we're heading into Tacoma, And they were, in fact, headed into Tacoma. But that's something that, at the time, would have probably taken some flying, professional flying experience to recognize. Mm -hmm. And so that stood out to Tina as kind of a red flag. He also said some other things during their time together that made her think that he had military and or flying experience. I think the kind of consensus was, as you say someone who would even attempt this needed that kind of experience, particularly with the military-style parachutes, which yeah, I, I don't know anything about parachuting, but apparently they're sufficiently different from parachutes that you would have while skydiving for fun that they suspected that this person needed some kind of military experience.
0: Especially without the Internet. There's no way just an average Joe could do this.
2: Right. And so that was kind of the working theory initially, but later the FBI changed its stance on this completely. So the official initial FBI profile said it was someone with military, perhaps paratrooper experience. But by the end of the 70s, they had completely changed their thinking on this. And the thinking there was that anyone with that kind of training and experience would never have attempted this under these conditions. That the weather, the darkness, the terrain, even someone with paratrooper experience but no gear would not have a good chance of surviving this jump. And so they felt like someone who had the experience to know that would not have taken that risk.
0: It's not impossible logic, but it's also not 100%.
2: (laughs) Right. Especially as we'll see later, some of the kind of theories point to suspects that had some sociopathic traits. And so that kind of thinking may not sway someone who doesn't experience fear and needs money or wants money. The other thing is the FBI's own profile on people who commit bank robberies and other kinds of crimes for large amounts of money states that those are typically motivated by a sudden need for a large amount of money. And so Mm -hmm. someone who's under the pressure to suddenly get their hands on $200,000 and maybe has some sociopathic tendencies, I can see them going through with a plan, even if their training might indicate that the chances of success would be low. So just a little bit of interesting thing to note there. Another theory came out in 2011 when a woman named Marla Cooper suggested publicly that her uncle, who was deceased at the time, was D.B. Cooper. Her uncle's name was Lynn Doyle Cooper, or L.D. Cooper. Now, this doesn't exactly take into account that the D.B. was a complete accident that The person who claimed to be Cooper could not have in any way predicted or orchestrated, but whatever. (laughs) She had the theory. And she said that her mother also agreed with the theory, so the mother's brother. And according to an ABC News report, quote, Haley doesn't remember much about that Thanksgiving in 1971 where her brother-in-law returned to the house in Sisters, Oregon, but she believes he could be the hijacker. Haley's statements are one reason why the FBI thinks the tip from Marla Cooper is credible. Quote, I've always had a gut feeling it was LD, Haley told ABC News. I think it was more what I didn't know is what made me suspicious than what I did know, because whenever the topic came up, it immediately got cut off again, end quote. So apparently he showed up to Thanksgiving dinner looking kind of bedraggled, and he claimed he had been in a car accident. But when the family turned over fingerprints that LD had left behind, the FBI eliminated him. Another really interesting theory came out in 2000 when a man named Dwayne Weber claimed to be Cooper on his deathbed. But I won't go into all of the in and outs here because he was essentially eliminated through DNA testing. Another popular theory that continues is if we look back at Richard McCoy, the copycat. So the copycat, you know, I said before, had been eliminated because of an alibi. He was supposed to have been in Las Vegas during this time. But he still looked really good to a lot of people. He was a Vietnam vet, a former Green Beret helicopter pilot, and an avid skydiver. And he was studying law at Brigham Young University at the time. So, as I said before, in April 1972, he committed a very similar crime. He hijacked a plane, and he asked for $500,000 at that time. And he was able to parachute to freedom, but he was captured a few days later because he left behind a lot more evidence. There's some who still think that he might have been Cooper, but again, it's not conclusive, and I think there's no way to prove or disprove that at this time. You know, we've talked in other episodes about how alibis that exclude people from an investigation can sometimes turn up to be kind of holy. There's another theory that came out that Cooper could have been a woman, And there are reports of people who saw and interacted with Cooper who said that he was slight. So the um, flight attendants described him as about 5'10", medium build, but some of the men who saw and interacted with him described him as smaller, as around 5'9", but also mentioned his slight frame. So there's some kind of idea that perhaps it was a woman. In the late 70s and early 80s, a woman named Barbara Dayton apparently, in bits and pieces, confessed her involvement in the crime with friends of hers, slowly over the course of time. And she was also a World War II veteran and claimed to have been born Robert Dayton. But as interesting as this may seem, the FBI never commented on it, and there's no kind of official reporting about this one. So this just goes under the kind of wild speculation. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the John List theory, which just almost feels too good to be true, but also so perfect that you want it to be true, right? I mean, he disappeared exactly three weeks before and just vanished. So again, there's something of the folk hero, not in his crimes, but in how he was able to just disappear and evade authorities for so long. And when this theory first came to light, the FBI said that they would investigate him until he was eliminated. Their descriptions were very similar. And eerily, List had mentioned that he had spent his mother's last $200,000 of savings right before his crime. So there were just some kind of strange ways that things lined up. Mm -hmm. But again, no connection, no real connection could ever be made. The last one I want to mention is, I think, really interesting. And this one came out... In a movie that was created for Netflix or a series, a limited series that was created for Netflix called D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? I don't Mm -hmm. want to go too much into that because I imagine you'll probably talk about that in your section, Andrew. But the theory focuses on a man named Robert Rackstraw. And he was one of the main suspects throughout the 70s. And he remains a suspect today. Rackstraw was a former Army paratrooper. And he kind of fit the profile. He was discharged from the Army after serving in Vietnam. And he had some bitterness about his time there. And he began kind of a life of low-level crime when he got back. So he was arrested for passing bad checks, for falsifying military records, and for domestic violence. He was even in the mid-70s charged with the murder of his stepfather, but he was acquitted by a jury for that crime. In 1978, he tried to fake his own death by crashing a rented airplane into Monterey Bay. So he was found a couple of months later, and they charged him with stealing the aircraft, passing bad checks, and he spent time in prison for that. And the FBI officially ruled him out as a suspect, but there's just a lot of things that still line up there. There Mm -hmm. are even investigators out there who believe that he might have been a CIA black ops agent and was somehow part of this in that way. So that one goes pretty deep, and I feel like that could be a whole episode just exploring that rabbit hole. But again, very tantalizing. And this is the person who I had in mind when I was describing someone with sociopathic tendencies. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Rackstraw died in 2019, and so we may never have the answer here, but if you look at his mugshot from the 70s, there are a lot of similarities there. So, still, I would say on that one, very up in the air. The fact of the matter is, someone committed this crime. So, Mm -hmm. as improbable as any of these possibilities seem, one of them or someone else is the person and again i think the fbi they kind of made wild swings i think there was disagreement within the fbi about what the person who did this looked like what the profile was and how it all fit you know so what do you think i mean do you think they survived the jump
0: so i've always thought they survived the jump there are some chances they didn't Mm -hmm. and maybe they did just die (laughs) Yeah. Because <laughs> thinking about it, after you saying how much different like military parachutes could be, I guess, because I've always thought, like, how would the parachute not be found? But what if they never even got it open? Mm-hmm. What if they literally just jumped out straight to their death and no parachute? <laughs>
2: I did read one reference in the, the sources I was looking at that said one FBI agent commented at the time that they were either looking for a parachute or a hole, which is kind of gross, but to that point, yeah. And one little detail that I didn't mention is when they were getting the packs, that I keep calling them packs, but when they were getting the parachutes, they um, they called on some local skydiving experts to get them they got the military style from a nearby base and um, a skydiver got the two kind of sport parachutes and put them all together what he realized later is that one of the packs that he had delivered and i can't remember if it was a front or back one was accidentally a training pack so the top of it was sewn up and he could not have gotten it open and so one pack that he had on, I think it was the the backpack, but I'm not sure, could have been deployed and was perfectly fine. And, and this man who helped packed it himself, the other one could not be opened or deployed. Now, whether Cooper had discovered that before he jumped or not is not known, of course. Um, and it wasn't part of a master plan to force him to jump to his death. It was just mix-up as they were all scrambling to make this happen in the time frame and from their perspective save the lives of all of these people on board this plane but that's just a little interesting note there so of the four packs only three of them were functional and two of the functional ones were still on the plane so that's kind of a piece of it again the drop zone they really don't know reports came out later of planes that were flying in the area and they felt that the heading i mean I'm, i may not be using all the precise terminology correctly because this is not my area of expertise but that headwinds were slightly different than what they had been basing their drop zone calculations on and he felt that the drop zone would be farther to the east or you know but there is kind of a large lake that is in this area that feeds a tributary that feeds into the columbia river And some speculated that he might have gone straight into the lake. And if that had happened, then he would have certainly been probably sucked down by all the weight that he had on him between the money and the parachutes and everything. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And then this lake is known to be very deep and has a lot of sediment on the bottom. And so he could have been kind of sucked to the bottom, drowned, and then buried in sediment at the bottom of this lake never to be seen again so that's kind of one possible scenario in which he and the money were never seen again
0: weirdly before we started recording i was like i just really don't think they died but Mm -hmm. now i'm like i guess it actually is pretty likely they could have just died
2: i think that's the only scenario in which he died and no trace of him has ever been found No scrap of parachute has been found. You know, that money was found. But again, how it got there. Now, I read when they found the money, the boy found like a few bills kind of nearish the surface of the bank. But then when they went, obviously, and they started looking for more because they're thinking, could the criminals have buried it or whatever? And they found some more random bills almost three feet down. So one little note in here of historic context, which we talked about before we started recording, but I haven't mentioned is about nine years after the crime, Mount St. Helens, the volcano that is not too far from this location erupted kind of pretty famously and just spewed ash and debris all over the place. And Mm -hmm. particularly in one kind of area that they had been searching. So another possibility is that, you know, He did land. He died not in a lake, but on the surface and would have probably in the course of years been found or his skeleton or whatever, but it was buried in the ashes and sediment from the volcano and now is lost forever. So that's another kind of possibility, which seems a little less likely than the just going straight down into a lake, but it's still a possibility.
0: Yeah, my full-on bullshit speculation (laughs) is what if he never jumped out of the plane and it was an inside job with someone in the flight crew Mm -hmm. and like if it was a woman dressed as a man the idea that they could like quickly change get off with the rest of the passengers at the end like that's the least likely scenario but it's something I've always wondered
2: I don't think it's totally far-fetched because remember, they were sent out of a plane in the farthest reaches of the airfield, not where any kind of overhead lights existed. And so could someone have gotten off the plane, fallen back, and disappeared into the darkness off of the airfield? I mean, not entirely far-fetched, I don't think. I don't remember seeing anyone pose that, but for sure it could have happened. the The thing that makes me lean against you know he sank to the bottom of the lake and was never seen from or he got buried in ash from Mount St. Helens is that again someone did this someone with a very specific look and someone with very specific understanding of skydiving parachuting air travel where is the missing person i almost feel like if that scenario had happened where he died in the jump we would know about that because someone who lined up perfectly would suddenly be not where they should be and that's what leads me to think one of these theories where he slept in his own bed that night somewhere and nobody's connecting him to this holds more water for me because again You know, middle aged white guys who can present as educated and middle class don't just disappear with no explanation and nobody misses them.
0: So, do you think he purposefully threw some money in a river?
2: I mean, there's lots of theories that that is true. That, you know, so one of the theories that has to do with um, Rackstraw is that Rackstraw had an accomplice or accomplices. And this is a very in-depth theory. If you're interested, we've got links in our show notes. Go and check it out. But essentially that he had at least two or possibly more co-conspirators. And he jumped. He landed. There was a car nearby waiting for him. Picked him up. A plane was coming from another airport nearby, a small one and flew overhead, saw the blinkers on from the car that picked him up. That was the signal that it was successful. The plane then flew to a third airstrip, small nearby. The car drove to that airstrip, met. They changed planes, changed cars. He changed clothes. They split up the money. The plane left with some of the money. The car, they went in another car with the rest of the money. And then... I don't know they dumped fifty thousand dollars in this lake some of it went upstream where the kid found it and the rest of it they took and buried somewhere so that's like the broad strokes of this wild theory but as you mentioned you know this is 1971 this guy didn't have a cell phone in his pocket he couldn't call somebody and let them know where he was going to be he couldn't have predicted ahead of time how long it was going to take to refuel the plane so he had no way of saying I think I'll be over this area at this time. I mean, you could still say that, oh, the guy just waited out there all night. He was going to wait there until he saw him. But how did Cooper in the dark pick a drop zone so precisely in conditions that, you know, there was no visibility? Um, So that whole scenario, it's not impossible. I just, it's hard to imagine how that could work.
0: Yeah, I think if he lived, his survival was... In his hands. Like, I think it would have to be somebody capable of surviving a couple days even in those temperatures and in the wilderness. And who's to say what was in his carry-on bag? Right. I mean, could have literally been survival tools and jackets and sleeping bag.
2: That's one thing. Yeah. So he didn't have a carry on the way that we think of it, but he apparently had some kind of paper bag with him in addition to the briefcase. So we know that, you know, he had a briefcase that maybe had a bomb in it. Although I tend to think if it did have a bomb, he wouldn't have jumped, jumped with it. I mean, that's just, that's just me um, making things up, but I think a pretty solid hunch that the bomb wasn't a bomb, but he did have some other thing with him that could have had jump shoes and a coat and you know goggles or whatever he would have needed um so yeah I mean I I I still tend to think after doing this little medium dive that whoever it was survived the jump and you know whatever happened to the money I could have been just the publishing of the serial numbers this person knew that they could never use that money they buried it somewhere and that was the end of it Or they dumped it all in the lake and some of it was found and some wasn't downstream. You know, I don't that doesn't seem like that much of a mystery because it was literally two weeks later that the stupid U.S. attorney told the whole world (laughs) that they had photographed it and they had all the serial numbers. So, again, not surprising that the money has never turned up in use on the open market.
0: Or you take it out of the country.
2: Yeah yeah so
0: which I may or may not have a tiny mention that I don't want to get in now, but another tiny theory uh in next week's episode.
2: Ooh, interesting Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, my overwhelming sense is that this is someone who would have been missed if he just suddenly dropped off the face of the earth, and so it's someone who re-entered their life at some point
0: Ugh, i just want to know
2: <laughs> i mean this one seems solvable to me right because they have a dna profile and you know yeah they say that they can't identify they can only eliminate but now with forensic genealogy who knows what's possible
0: uh, i just need that crystal ball that can tell me the truth
2: <laughs> i know i want to know i want to know uh yeah You know, this one was big news all during the 70s and 80s, which is right when I was soaking up pop culture as a kid. And yeah, it really still fascinates and intrigues me.
0: Yeah, so next week we're going to dive deep into a lot of pop culture inspired by this place. Oh,
2: yeah. Can't wait.
0: So as always, listeners, we appreciate the hell out of you.
2: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> Bye. Please head over to Apple Podcast and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus we'll read five star reviews on an upcoming episode.
1: This has been a Facts from Janet production.